Welcome to Fragmented, a software developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better developers. My name's Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. Before we get going here, I wanted to share with you something that you might find very useful and helpful. Very recently, I wrote an ebook on how to make sure that you're building at a high enough rate if you're a freelancer or consultant. So if you do any type of freelancing or consulting, then please pay attention. Very often when folks start consulting or freelancing, they set their rates too low, mainly because they don't know what the rate should be, or they just feel like that's the best way to get clients. And in fact, you will get clients. However, unfortunately, over a period of time, you'll find out that you just cannot sustain at that low consulting or freelancing rate. So I've written a book, small ebook that you can download for free that will show you the very bare minimum amount that you need to be charging as a freelancer or consultant so that you can make the right amount of money. So if you decide to go full-time in consulting or full-time in freelancing, or just continue to do it when you have time, this will ensure that you're charging the right amount. And you can get that ebook at donfelker.com slash ebook. Just plug in your email. I'll send you the PDF right to right to you. Uh, it's free of charge. So nothing on my end. Just plug in your email. And uh, again, that's at donfelker.com slash ebook. Everybody, welcome back to the show. Really glad to have you listening here to the podcast again. Unfortunately, Kaushik's not with us again this week. But I do have a special guest that I'm really excited to talk to. Uh, regarding a topic that I've never discussed before and never really dove into. So hopefully you learn as much as I do here on today's podcast. Uh, on today's podcast, we have a special guest. His name is Glenn Leifite and Glenn works at Microsoft. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Don. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we've known each other for a number of years, all the way back to when I lived in the Twin Cities up in Minneapolis and you were in the area too, when we spoke at code camps together and all kinds of stuff like that. And you've, we've stayed in contact and you're over at Microsoft now. And again, we've continued to communicate over the years. And we recently started talking about some of the things that, that you do over at Microsoft. And then you mentioned something that was really interesting to me. Um, but before we hop into that, um, can you give folks who are not familiar with you or anything uh, around what you do, kind of background information about yourself and maybe software and kind of how you got into what you're doing and what you're doing now? Yeah, sounds good. So um, again, my name is Glenn Leifite. Um, I've now been at Microsoft nine years, but uh, as I roll back the history a little bit, you know, I, I kind of, I'm actually don't have a technology degree. I'm completely self-taught. Um, I kind of fell into the fell into it all when uh, my best friend called me on the phone and said, you know, so, so what are you doing today? I said, I'm kind of bored at work. I was buying cars for an automotive fleet leasing company. Um, and he was starting up an internet service provider um, oh, okay. himself. Um, this is in, in the, the uh, mid nineties. And uh, he said, be careful what you ask for. Um, and by the next day I had a job offer. Um, as he as he kind of figured it out, and uh, about a week later, I moved uh, about 45 miles west um, to the town that I grew up in and helped set up an internet service provider for the first time. Really? Um, and it was a, a fascinating experience. I was the first hired on employee, um, and uh, it was a, quite the adventure. I did everything from the role of of CFO to the to you know all the technical work um, that we had to do. Um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of got into technology from there, then kind of rolled through some technical support roles, um, moved into more of an operational person. So, you know, Windows, Unix, you know, kind of a more, more uh, 
OS-based or, or web server-based um, solutions. Further and further, I kind of w- went in, developed for a little bit, um, really enjoyed that, um, then moved into um, more of an architectural type role. Um, and uh, when I was at FICO, the credit score company um, in the Twin Cities, that's where I had the most recent or the the biggest set of pivots. Where I became, an, I was an architect, and then I became the security architect, and then I moved on to uh, to Microsoft, um, doing uh, a myriad of different types of types of work, all in security and secure development for the most part. Um, the uh, most recent biggest. Th- Things I helped roll out static code analysis to the all of IT, and to give oh, really? you an idea, when I when I arrived at Microsoft, I moved from a seven person or maybe nine person security team to a security team of seven hundred ninety. Whoa, the scale is just hundredfold. Wow. I mean, as, as someone coming in, I'm like, holy cow! Um, this this is it was such a different thing. Everybody was so specialized, and and you had to have such process and things like that. I've learned a lot about navigating process, obviously, doing it. Um, and then, uh, you know, the IT department at the last company was you know 40. You know, there was 25,000 developers in IT when I when I joined, and Microsoft. in Microsoft, I wow. had to roll. I I rolled out static. You know. To a small company, I'm like, yeah, I rolled out static code analysis um, to, uh, to to the IT group. Um, I rolled it out to 3,500 different teams um, as as we rolled through it. You know, pushed behind beyond all the scaling limits, all all sorts of interesting things as part of it. Um, wow. And uh, did that for a while, and then uh, also did a uh, kind of a mini CISO role, um, working what with. What is that? CISO? Uh, what does that mean? Um, so I was assigned to one of the businesses. So when you look at a business in Microsoft, they're they're large. You know, they've got um, each one's roughly the size. Of what I I usually say a very small Fortune 500 company. They've okay. got the budget. They've got that many people. They've got all that. Um, and so what they needed was people to um, help their leadership understand security. Okay. Um, and so we would we would play that role of. Um, enabling those their teams to make smart decisions from a security perspective. Um, some of the fun parts of that was I actually sat in the um, in the monthly um, meetings that they had for for uh, um, the for all the approvals and everything else. So sat with the executive leadership as as they went through those things, and then as there were development teams that needed help. Um, from that perspective, like, oh, we're not going to prove that. We need to to do that. I would dive deeper in with the development teams as well, and and you know, do some training, help them understand what where the issues were, um, and how they could do better security secure design. So, um, C- as well. is it CSO is that what you said? CSO, CSO is a chief security yeah. officer. Chief, yeah, kind of chief information security officer okay. is uh, is a is that um, most of the time, you know, in a company like our size, we're we're not we call it a mini role because the reality is we're not. We're not the real thing um, yeah. by by any stretch. We don't have the executive power by any means. Um, but what we do have is, you know, we kind of lead them from a security process okay. process um, across all of those things um, and all the other needs that they may have as a business. Every business is, is very different, obviously, um, and so they have different risks that we that we take on. Um, then I moved over to the um, my current team, which is Customer Security and Trust um, over at Microsoft. Um, we uh, do a lot of fascinating fascinating work. Um, we actually exist in the legal organization at Microsoft, which is an interesting place for an engineering team. Okay. But it's actually a great place because we're centralized and we don't have any of the uh, push and shove when it comes to timelines for a product. Um, so we can concentrate on security and security only, um, looking at what needs to be done, um, how do you, how do we make it for the next generation, and then we work with each of the product groups to make it 
um, available for them. Um, because, uh, you know, the thought process behind like Xbox is going to be different than the thought process behind Azure or different than the educational team. Um, you know, for example, we've got, you know, we've got that educational team and they do, we do, you know, software that is used by kindergartners. You start mm -hmm. thinking about passwords and, and, you know, the thought process of passwords for an adult and the process of passwords for a kindergartner are a very different thought. Yeah. Um, from that perspective, and identity is a very different thought process, you know, and in the education market than in the other markets as well. So I think it's it's one of those things that uh, it's uh, a fun little thing that we get to do is you know be across Microsoft, so we get to see all the different different types of things. We get to take care of you know security behind early stage acquisition work, um, um, do some work with uh, with internal audits, and and it's just fun working being able to work with all the different types of product groups that we have. That's um, cool. And uh, essentially, if we see risk, we just dive in and help them resolve whatever that risk might be. Now, when we first started talking about what you had done, you know, back and forth over the last many months uh, over at Microsoft, yeah. one of the things that popped up is you said that um, you talk something about secure development lifecycle. And that's why I wanted to bring you on today, because that sounded very interesting. Yeah. Um, what, what is secure development lifecycle? Well, it's, it's it's morphed over the years. Um, now you'll oftentimes hear um, sec DevOps or or some of those types of terms. That's kind of what where it has come from. Mm -hmm. um, the SDL, you know, a lot of the SDL came actually out of Microsoft back in the, you know, earlier days when when uh, Bill Gates actually shut down all the development and said you're only working on security issues, and only those. Um, and then we it actually we actually at Microsoft spun up a team, um, which is kind of an ancestor team to the team I'm currently on, um, mm -hmm. that really helped build um, what became kind of what more of an industry standard um, secure development lifecycle. So the idea basically is for a secure development lifecycle is really just enabling security steps within the development process um, to enable secure code. Okay. Um, in the grand scheme of things, one of the one of the issues from a security um, slash uh, development relationship perspective it always has been, you know, you've got the business context and all the business requirements that, that, you know, there's, there's never a shortage of to say the least. And then, you, then, you know, there's also, they, and the, and those users care about quality. Mm -hmm. They care about speed. Yeah. And so all of those types of things tend to get baked in into requirements, but security hasn't always been in that forefront. Um, and so that's kind of where the role that we played is helping enable them. And the other part is a lot of the security things are kind of hidden um, in terms of what what's there. So you need to make sure that you're you're doing the right thing. So it's not really a business person, direct business person's role to be able to say, hey, I know, know you need A, B, C, and D because they don't understand the risks that are you know, under technical risks that are underpinning, you know, they're an expert on the business. Yeah. Um, so they'll help you with business logic flaws, but they won't necessarily help you with security flaws. Um, and that's essentially what this is, is to help enable putting things in place to catch things that you're going to do. Um, sometimes, you know, for exa great examples are, um, you know, that, that we often still run into these days is, you know, just people doing patterns that are allow for, that don't have, uh, for example, input validation in place um, oh, or, really? or and, and things like that. It's still pretty prevalent across the industry. It's better and better because frameworks now have it built in uh, more now than, than in previous years and it continues to get better, um, but still doing it in a strict enough way because um, you still get significant numbers of things. There's still, you know, if one of the things is we're dealing with is the fact that the same vulnerabilities that we saw 10 years ago really are still the, they're, they're slightly different, but they're not really the 
the top 10 are really pretty much the same. There's a couple of new added ones because of mobile and, and uh, frameworks that have gone out and, and the lack of, of uh, Shockwave and some of those other frameworks that have disappeared. There's other things that have, have come up, but, but the vast majority of them are, are simple. Um, but we really start back with the SDL. We really start with um, the idea is to start with design, secure design and then flow you all the way through a secure launch. So what does um, a secure design look like from that, from that perspective? Let's say I have a development team and we're going to be building some products or we get some new features that we need to build from the business. What does that look like from the design perspective in a security sense? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's two things to start with. Uh, the first thing I'll caveat is there's a lot of things you can do, but you have to select the right things for you as an organization to do. Because okay. if, you're, if you're a team of two, you can do so much. If you're a team of 20,000, you can do, you can add more resources and do different things from that perspective. I tend to speak more right now from the volume perspective of, of mm-hmm. quantity of employees and, and bandwidth, but we still have the same push and shove of, you know, business features are, 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 you know, there and, and so forth. We just, we probably have more security knowledge in-house, but um, from a uh, bandwidth perspective, it's harder. Um, the, uh, as I look at, you know, what, what does secure design look like? Really, it starts with um, essentially the way you guys do, you know, as a development team, you might do data flow um, and work through that. Really, what we do is what's called a threat model. Um, it's really based off of your data flow and your your applications. It's, it's more in-depth than necessarily than that, but you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so where I usually recommend um, Teams is, is baby steps approach because, you know, if, you, if I tell you, hey, by the way, let's go ahead and... Um, threat model your entire application and it's been around for five years well that's a there's some laundry there to to get through to to be able to 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 get that done so really what we do is we start let's start with fresh with with something clean you know so you start with basics okay what what information does this um, application have in it you know Mm -hmm. what type what type of data do we have who would be interested in that you know help us understand what that that footprint looks like um the other piece would be that you know so Really, the first threat models I see actually start in Excel, and it's just lists of, of information, um, which is where to start with. Because so, then what you need to be able to do is start understanding where the risk is um, and so forth. And then um, when we when we look broader at what a real threat model looks like or, or a larger scale threat model, it's really a data flow diagram with special coding on it that'll tell me, okay, I'm using this. This is you know this line is encrypted coming from here to here, and so we're using HTTPS. And this is how we're authenticating. We're authentic. We're we know that we have authentication in this place, and it's done with certificates or it's done with whatever. And and then we can identify what that is um, and it really is kind of you know managing of that application flow and that data um, to ensure that the, that you're um, that you understand what's trusted on your in your application what's not trusted okay. um, and I think that's one of the key interesting points that we that we always run into um, is that as we look at um, things that are the the information that that you want to look at it's what do you trust? The question yeah. is, you know, because there's many pieces to that puzzle. You know, do you trust that open source software? You know, good question. Should you trust that open source software? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole, you know, hour discussion all in itself, probably. Yeah. But <laughs> as, as, we, as we look at that, you know, but then there's, do you trust the team down the hall that's doing the, that's, you know, are they following the secure development lifecycle as much as you are? 
you know, where do you where do you draw that line as an organization to to do that? If you're a small company, it's a lot easier to draw that trust diagram because you know more about what's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're, you know, a, a good identification of you know something at Microsoft, you know, we may have core components that are built that are you know completely two or three organizations away. You don't even know the people involved in it necessarily. You just know you you consume the service of it. It's so you have to make box. this. Yeah, it's a black box to use. So you really have to make those assumptions. And a lot of companies are that way. Um, so you really have to understand, do you, can you make assumptions? Do I, do I trust what they're doing is secure um, so that I can carry it forward? Mm-hmm. Um, in the in, if, in the grand plan, you'd, in, in an ideal world, you'd be all having those security discussions already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, between the teams and then that's much less of an issue. But if you're just getting started, then, you know, you have to start with what you trust and then you can kind of move out from that, um, that thing, um, as you do it. Let's say that you were, you were coming into, um, let's say I had a company, right. And I hired you and we are building the next generation, best note taking app that ever happened in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's got a mobile app and it's got an API. What would you come in and look at and say, all right, here's what, you know, talking to me or my team, what would you kind of talk to us about to make sure that we had our bases covered from the initial outset of before we kind of started running, before we started writing code or getting too deep down the, the feature set? Right, right. I think that, you know, as we look at it, I think there's, there's a set of expectations that you need to set for yourself as an organization, um, especially if you're developing something new. Um, you know, first is like, okay, how secure are we making this? I mean, are we are we designing this so the DID, DOD can be a customer, or are we designing this so so this, okay, the, yeah. the traditional end user is using it? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's vastly different things that you might want need to do. Um, yeah, does everything need to be encrypted on the client and on the server and in transmission? Or exactly, whatever? and 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 to a certain extent, most of that is is cheaper now than it used to be. You know, we we used to. I remember in the days when I start, first started working at a at an internet company, we had. Uh, SSL offloaders because the processing was so yes. so great that we had to do all of that. Now it's just, oops, we we uh, you know we used an inch of processing power in the grand scheme of, you know where processing power is today, mm-hmm. um, and it isn't necessarily as 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 uh, difficult. Um, but you'd you'd want to make sure that you're you're, you're you know doing doing that encryption. But on the other piece, you you want to make sure when you look at it, it's like okay, how are we protecting that data? And what would be the ramifications if this got out? You know, mm-hmm. if it's traditional note-taking app, the first brush is, I don't know, nobody's really going to care much about that data. But the question is, okay, now who starts Excuse using me. it? Yeah. You know, and, and so forth. So so now a CEO starts using it because you want CEOs to use it because it might catch on and then the rest of the company might want to use it. And then yeah, that, that's a huge licensing win, you know, um, from that perspective. So if that's the case, then you really need to think about it from, from who's your most secure user that would want to use it and start thinking about it from that perspective. It's really easy for a small company or a sm- or the beginnings to kind of take security shortcuts. Mm-hmm. But in the end, the number of times I've people seen people have to throw away code or really start over again or worse, think they're up for an acquisition and then oh. the acquisition goes away because your secure your code is just not secure enough and it's cheaper to rebuild it than it is to fix it um and that's not uncommon um really? i can't i can't i can't i can't really say more than that but it but it okay. is definitely not uncommon um Fair and, enough. I, and, and i and, and i'll just say i just recently ran into it ran into something and i was like wow okay um it, from a from a security perspective and i think a lot of it comes just from not knowing. Okay. Most of this isn't about, um, 
oh, you cho- you just made bad choices. Um, most of this comes in trends. Most of this is just, you know, not knowing. So it's, you know, and as part of that, it's like, okay, making sure you have your secure coding practices in place. Um, and I could, I'll, I can share links, but there's there's what's called yeah. the OWASP Top 10, um, which is um, the Open Web, Web Application Security Project, which is a nonprofit organization, um, actually puts together, a, has a list of the top 10 vulnerabilities. Um, and if you can take care of those, you've taken care of a lot of, mm. of things. Um, from what that are some of those? Do you, do you remember? What was that? What are some of those? Do you remember? Off the top um, of some of them will be um, the uh, SQL injection is, is still high on the list. Really? Um, That's still high, yeah. even with all oh, the it's, it's, incre- it's incredible. Um, hard-coded credentials are <laughs> oh, yeah, everywhere. No. Um, I, I, I'm not looking at anyone or anything out Don't anywhere. But Why are you looking at me? No, I'm just kidding. No, no just, just, you know, it happens. We'll just say that. Um, you know, it's it's default configurations. You know, mm-hmm. it's some of the core basics that, that you think about. Um, I used to be the person on the development team or on the operations team where the developers would say, it works on my box, but I can't get it to work in production. Go fix yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And and I'd, and I'd go hammer on and fix it. And most of the time, it was a hard-coded credential or something something in a configuration file they didn't recognize or need or, or didn't know that, oh, well, that only works on a workstation that doesn't work, you know, when you take the database off the server and all these mm-hmm. other things that have to happen. I think what when you think about it as a scale opportunity, um, security makes a lot of sense um, mm-hmm. from that perspective. Um, but it, again, there's there's a lot of core basics that are there. There's there's also, you know, newer ones, you know, making sure your data is encrypted, um, uh, making sure that you're up to date on your encryption. Is that data um, like encrypted in the database or just on your on your local workstation or what what do you mean by that? So I think there's there's many ways to to deal with encryption. I think there's there's parts where it's like for example making sure that you're over HTTPS and and making sure that you only support the most recent versions of TLS um as opposed to to just being able to um you know say okay we're going to be backwards compatible for everybody. That may be great for everyone, but it it's only going to take off like less than 1% of your users, and you're going to have much better uh, protection um, from that perspective. There is encryption that most likely you should be doing on your device, on your device, whether that be on the workstation or on a, on a, um, on a uh, mobile device. Mm-hmm. Um, from an app perspective, you should, you should, there's some encryption that should be happening. You know, for example, if you have a, an internal database or a, or a set of files that you're using in there um, that, ha- that houses you know, protected information passwords and GUIDs and all those all those fun things. You want to make sure that those things are secure um, as, as part of that. Um, matter of fact, some of the largest breaches that we've seen from a mobile perspective happen because everything's just right there. You didn't have to, they, the hacker didn't have to work um, from that perspective. Um, it, you just gave it to them by, by doing that. I um, recently was looking at a uh, unnamed um, IOT vendor because I was, I'm just playing around with it. I've got the system at home. I'm, I'm like, this is really cool. I love it. Oh, oh, I have admin rights to the whole thing now. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it took me, took me less than 20 minutes. Um, I think it's, it's something that, that a lot of industries are still catching up on um, from that perspective and, and, and so forth. So those are, those are some of the, some of the things, but I think as you go through and look at secure design, when you go through and look at some of these things, you need to really try to understand what the risk is. Um, one of the things I actually do um, when I teach threat modeling as one of the classes that I teach at Microsoft is pull back 
because everybody's really close to their application okay. and they really protect it. And they, oh, we're not doing anything. I can't, I can't see any risks here, you know, things like that. Let's yeah. take it out. Let's threat model a restaurant and have those that have that conversation on a restaurant. You don't have any vesting in that. And there's a lot of flexibility. Is there a drive-through? Is there not a drive-through? Is it formal dining? There's, there's lots of options within that, much like in software. Yeah. Um, that you can do. And as you go through, it's like, okay, how would you protect the doors? Do we need to have any? Is there a mitigating control there? You know, it, it, for the most part, we expect that, that people going into, going into the restaurant are peaceful. So we don't need like armed guards and key cards or anything like that. You know, depending upon where you're at, you may need those for the bathroom though, depending mm-hmm. upon what's, what's happening and in, in, in your, in your individual area, you know, and in, in Seattle with some of the homeless issues, that's, you know, it's not uncommon to see doors locked at, at, in restrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, you go to, um, you know, you go to the cashier. Okay. Well, what, where are your threats there? You know, there, there's, you know, there's obviously cash in the door, a little bit more threat there than, than say the soda fountain that's sitting out to, outside, you know, you know, when we were growing up, the soda fountain was behind the scenes yeah, it was, and, yeah. and, and, and so forth. And what they realized was that the cost of doing it was far worse and far heavier of refilling everybody's soda than it was to just give them free refills out, out front mm-hmm. and just let them have at it. And they trusted the fact that nobody's going to barely make a disaster out of the thing. It's not going to break the machine. All these other, other things they don't even th- think about um, now that we used to, you know, kind of have this protective layer around. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas there's other things, you know, depending upon where you're at, maybe you've, you've got a, you know, you know, some, some more protection around the cash register, uh, for example, or more key code, more, uh, more sophisticated locks to get behind the scenes. Um, so nobody can get to the safe or, or those yeah, types of things. Think out of the box, really. Right. And then, then on top of this, like then there's food safety. I mean, somebody could get sick, you know, all the, all those aspects of things too. Um, as you look at them, like, how do they protect against that? And, you know, some of those things that we're trusting again, we're trusting the food standards that are put in place. You know, we're put, we're, we're trusting a we're, black box almost. Right. You've got this black box that we can trust. Okay. As, as a software developer, you know, again, you've got these things. Where do you trust? Where are those boundaries that, that you've put in place that the business has put in place? Mm-hmm. Um, some of those things, you know, the, a good example of the food industry or of, of the um, like the safety piece of that, of the food industry would be, okay, does your company have a specific solution to handle um, you know, as you're a cl- when you're in the cloud, there's oftentimes just a security service you can sign up for, and has a whole bunch of different services for that. Yeah. So there's a black box that you can just turn on, and it may cost you a little bit of money, but it's it's not something you're developing, and it's something that you can you know take a take a look at, and you can get alerted on, and you can understand where things are, and you can set the thresholds and everything you need. But as you look at it. Before you you look at the the number of people who don't turn those things on, it's pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the end, those are the things that are going to start um, preventing you from you know from having problems with with hackers or or uh, malicious malicious folks as part of it. So if let's say let's take another scenario here, if I have a maybe I'm listening to this, most likely there's a a bunch of well, mainly developers who listen to this show. Mm-hmm. And folks that are listening, they have applications probably already. Where can they, you know, I guess, what are some of the the top tips that you can give people to look at their existing infrastructure or existing applications? Say, all right, how can I check to make sure that we're following some type of good security practice, even if they're not sure of what the risk 
that the company should have is, or or what would you mm-hmm. recommend someone in that scenario do? There's a there's a, there's a couple of things that that I do recommend. I, first, I think uh, to start with, um, freshen up your, your knowledge. I think there's if you use Pluralsight or any other uh, many of the um, the uh, educational platforms out there, many of them have secure coding practices. Okay. Um, classes and so forth, take them. Um, even if even if they aren't the greatest presenter, it it is knowledge that's well worth the, the time and the effort. Um, if you go to OWASP, um, I think it's there's they've got a whole bunch of projects out there. It's all open source. Um, they're uh, basically a nonprofit that's really all about sharing information um, and so forth. And they've got a lot of resources uh, from that perspective. Um, for Microsoft, you can come to microsoft.com slash SDL, um, and we have a resource there as well that's available to to, uh, to folks. Um, if you're looking at, at tools, a lot of security tools tend to cost money um, yeah. because everybody's turned it into an industry. Um, the good and the bad of it is there are some open source tools as well um, that are part of that. Um, there's some that we have developed. There's a, a, a tool called um, DevSkim um, that, we, that we use that... Uh, um, really, it's essentially a. Um, it integrates with many of the uh, um, ID development IDEs are out there um, to basically look and say, "Oh, you're doing something insecure," and it'll point you out, point it out to you as you're typing it. Okay. Um, and and that that'll that'll certainly speed some things along um, as part of it. Other things such as um, we actually also um, released a tool now called. Um, I believe externally it's called Code Inspector. Internally, I think it's App Inspector. There's some weird marketing naming thing going on there, but I'll, I'll share I'll share the link to it. But the beauty of that tool is is different. Is it it actually goes through and tells you what you have, but it doesn't t- inform you. Hey, go fix this. Go fix that. But one of the things that we learned as we go through the SDL and we look at making sure everybody takes care of their tasks, um, which is a whole another another piece of the SDL. As we as we look at it, we want to make sure that everybody's you know they do their threat model, but they also have gotten their code checked in. And they know that they're using the right type of encryption and they know how, that they're using those things. Um, this actually goes through, this tool actually goes through and scans and tells you what you have. Okay. Um, because one of the things that we find very interesting is that if we actually did a Q and A with the team. Mm-hmm. And compared it, you'd be off by about thirty percent, because really? as a mind, you you fall into oh that's future future functionality, and we're going to do that. And sometimes you'll answer the questions on that behalf, or you don't realize that it's already in production, um, and you're actually behind the game depending upon how big your team is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some and sometimes it's the opposite side of it where it's like oh well that's been deprecated and that was deprecated a couple of years ago, but I just forgot that it was deprecated. Um, from that perspective as well. And so you really don't really get a very good picture of, of what that is. And time and time again, as we'd run this against scans, we'd or, or run this against, um, you know, the Q and a that we do a team with a team constantly, it'd be roughly that 30%. And it's some are off different ways, depending upon, you know, where they're at. Um, you know, have the test team been around for a long time and most of the people have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then those teams tend to tend to be saddled with the rear piece of it all because, because uh, they, they're so vested in the past of the history of the product that they don't remember which pieces in which portion or version and so forth. And, and things have deprecated out and things are, are coming in. There's just so many moving parts. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's like, Oh, I thought we got rid of that, but it's still there. And so forth, because people, you pulled it out of three quarters of it, but there was this one quarter over here that you forgot about um, yeah. as teams as well. And so, th- so it catches those things as well. Um, from yeah, that we'll, have get, we'll have to get that link. Is there, yeah. um, 
Is there any open source tools that you know of? I know you work for Microsoft, so a lot of yeah. stuff's going to be tailored towards uh, Microsoft products. But uh, do you know of any uh, open source tools that are out there that maybe can help other developers that maybe work on other platforms that maybe aren't Microsoft centric? And if you don't, yeah. that's all right. Yeah, and and a lot of the things that we're we're starting to do are multi-platform as well, because okay. um, you know we're growing, you know in many ways. And let's, let's, let's face it. When you go, go for an acquisition, you don't, you know, most, t- most companies aren't like, well, I want to be bought by Microsoft. So I'll just adopt off the Microsoft stack. You know, we, yeah. so we, we go, we buy, we, we do buy companies and we do, and, we do, and, and during those acquisitions and those don't change right away. And uh, sometimes they don't change, you know, depending on what it is like um, and so forth. So we got, <laughs> yeah. So we got, we've got a lot of different things going on. Um, and uh, and so forth. So so a lot of the stuff that we are working towards is is uh, um, is definitely um, becoming more cl- cross platform. Um, we've got another tool called application or attack surface analyzer, which is now multi platform. So you can do like Linux and 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 Mac and and so forth on it as well. And it'll actually tell you you know where are, where is the attack surface and what should should you minimize. Um, the uh, you know the all the all the work at uh, for that OWASP does is all completely cross-platform um, okay. from that perspective. So they, they um, matter of fact, because Microsoft tends to have a lot of the, the .NET stuff, they actually tend to tend to do the non.NET stuff is, is the stuff that gets more focused there um, from that organization as well. Because okay. um, they're all about open, open, open um, yes. from that perspective. So the more of that is there is, the better. Um, and I think that they do a great job. They actually celebrated their 20th anniversary, I think it's this year, um, oh, as part cool. of it. So they've been around a while. They've got a lot of a lot of good projects that have been out there. Um, there's um, there's proxy servers and, and and so forth that can help you um, understand it. It'll kind of attack your your service as you as you use it in testing and so forth. And you can really kind of test and see how it functions um, and so forth. They've got they've got quite a few different tools out there. Um, that uh, that really are helpful, and I think they're they have an architectural guide as well, which is a is a great resource as well um, to help people understand um, more there as well. Yeah, I'm taking a look on their website here. It looks like they have sensitive data exposure tools, broken authentication tools, broken access control tools, cross site scripting tools, insecure deserialization, insufficient logging and monitoring. There's a whole bunch here, and this this yeah. is. The- 10 we'll include i'm going to include this all in the links in the show notes for if you folks are listening and are interested um one question here you know before we kind of um, wrap this up is that um you mentioned earlier earlier something about acquisitions and it's something that a lot of the listeners are going to go through at some point in their career working in a lot of startups if there's a if there's a company that's in a startup phase and Mm -hmm. they know they're going to be going through an acquisition or attempting to do an acquisition hopefully going to get acquired, whatever. They're going to go down that yeah. path. Yeah. Um, what would you advise them to take a look at? Like, hey, here, make sure you got these three or four bases covered. That's going to kind of get put your best foot forward so that they don't yeah. run into the situation of like, oh, we're not going to be able to get acquired because of X. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's there's, there's a couple of things. Um, as we talked about earlier, plain text credentials, just get it under control. Um, that's huge, huge, huge in the startup space because I think that the things that you sacrifice from security for speed, like in database, are that in the database, like plain text in the database. It's most. It's usually actually in your code, so it'll be oh, in, hard it'll, coded, hard coded, hard coded. So it'll be encrypted, and then the person leaves, and th- and and there's there's stuff that's tied to users. There's all sorts of of weirdness that tends to happen there, um, and everybody's different in terms of what it is. But just making sure that even from the database, all all credentials should be. Um, 
you know, encrypted, preferably if you're in a cloud service, put it in a vault. You know, Azure's key vault, it's worth the expense, it's worth the time to do that um, and do that securely. Um, okay. If there are anything that's default configurations um, for an open source product that you're using, remember that you're on the hook for the, va- for the, dam- the damage that would happen from an open source software. It's still your, it's still your data. So you need mm-hmm. to make sure that everything's configured in a secure mas- manner. Most open source tools start open and don't aren't secured. And so you do have to go through configurations to, to, uh, to take those next steps. Um, the other piece be on most recent versions of, of platforms um, are big. If you, if you have the opportunity to do that, that's a huge help. Um, because the reality is, is there's vulnerabilities in all the platforms and they upgrade and they continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. But as teams, we don't always move forward. Um, and that and that de- deficit, um, when you move miss two, three, four, five versions becomes so big that it becomes actually almost a monumental effort. And then there's all this new stuff that comes out and they're like, and it's more secure. And they're like, well, maybe we should just redevelop it there. And, and then suddenly redevelopment conversations happen. And that's one of the things you wanna make sure you avoid is, that you want them to really value what you've done, all this work. Um, yeah. So everything you're doing from a security perspective, in another sense, is about ensuring you show that you're you're doing the value, you're um, you know valuing everything else that you're doing well enough mm-hmm. that it's not going to be forced down the pipe path because of something that's was in your control but you chose not to take control of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and and granted, was as a startup, you don't always have a lot of time and effort or speed, but some of this is just pure, pure um, it, it's just pure logic of of following from a secure process perspective. Um, it doesn't take that much more time to put your passwords in a vault, and once you start doing it, it actually starts speeding things up longer down. You know, as you go down the yeah. down the pipe, you just you just pay a little debt up front. Um, with that perspective, if you have the opportunity and you're looking at being acquired, the first thing I would actually recommend a company do if they have the opportunity or and the resources is have it and doesn't have to be a big one, but have somebody go through and do a penetration test of your environment and okay. see what it is. Because that's the first thing that we have done. You know, a third party comes in who's one of the best in the world that we hired to do it, because of course we don't want value of the IP. You know, we don't want to them to think we have the IP or anything like that. So we're at an arm's length, arm's length here as, as we do this, and we have a third party come in and, and do a, a penetration test. And that's where most of these findings come from, is going through that. So if you've got a penetration test tester that's that's worth the salt and you give them enough information to be able to dig in, um, those are a lot of the findings that will happen. Um, but if you're looking, but if you're core looking at it, you know, you want to look at you know, have some threat models, have good documentation from a security perspective, as well as, you know, just in general, because um, documentation really does matter um, okay. because, because, and, but also live up to that documentation. Um, it can't be, oh, we've have, you know, I've, I've seen several companies and worked at one in the past that may, may have, um, you know, done, even done, oh, we need a document for that. So they created a document, didn't put any information in it. Um but there was a document for it, so it, put, it fit the checkbox. Uh, but, but, so you have to really just you have to put your best foot forward mm-hmm. um, as part of it from a security perspective, because um, the security won't get you more money in the acquisition. Mm-hmm. But I have seen it cost you significantly. I've I've seen acquisitions go go down twenty million dollars, forty million dollars, because of the amount of effort that it takes to go do that. And that's a lot of money um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the grand scheme of things, because we realize in the end, we got to go fix all those issues. Because the problem is if you're 
think about it this way. If you're being acquired by Microsoft or IBM or any other large entity, Facebook, whatever, yeah. any, any one of them, they're on the radar. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you're as soon as you're acquired, you're on the radar. And that means that you're, you're receiving, you're being hacked against probably every six seconds, roughly. Um, And that's, that's the type of rate that we have or more often. Um, And those types of things continue to, to be, to be pushed. So, you know, if you're normally, maybe you're attacked once a day, every six seconds is a different factor. And it's not just somebody who's curious now. It's somebody who's specifically, you know, we've, we have foreign actors who come after our code um, and so forth. And, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll just say I'm not going to necessarily appoint where everybody's coming from, but many, many malicious people from all around the world um, that you hear about um, yeah. as and part I- of that. And, and, and when you turn that on to something that may be not secure because you're a startup and you're just moving fast and everything else, all of a sudden it turns into a train wreck for your users. Um, and so in the end, you've got, to, you've got to protect those users because those users are your customer base and they're the ones you, even in an acquisition, if you cost, though, if, the, if there's a belief that you'll cost those customers, now that your value as a company has gone down again, yeah. because, you know, that's part of the reason, you know, maybe buying you for IP or for the, the uh, you know, the service that you can conduct an ad, but we also expect people to be using that service um, yeah. to be helping us get to the next generation and help it help it mature into the next generation of, of things and, and so forth. So that's a huge piece of that puzzle um, as well. That's fantastic advice, Glenn. I really appreciate that. And I know a lot of people listening are, are definitely taking notes right around here because this is an area which a lot of folks in the Silicon Valley and around the world for that most part uh, face uh, when they're working in startups. So great, great info. To tell you the truth, I'm not sure what else I can ask. Is there anything that we're missing that you would like to cover in the secure development lifecycle that I haven't asked? I think there's there's a there's a couple of things because you know I actually do teach taught a uh, four day class on it. So obviously in an hour we're not going <laughs> to not going to get too far. But I think that the, there there are many steps to it. You can look at Microsoft.com/sdl that has has some more in depth work on it. Okay. Um, recognize that it that it can be scaled to your size. Okay. as well because it's about making sure you have secure steps and and making sure that you start because the problem is a lot of times people see the whole cycle and they go oh, i can't do that and they walk away mm-hmm. and the answer is okay well if you start doing threat modeling you make better security decisions up front well a lot of di- things will happen down the line and you're better off mm-hmm. if you start making ensuring that we've got input validation everywhere you're just better off for that. You know, even just a few of these are much better than doing nothing um, from that perspective. So think of it, think of it that way. I think the other piece of it is if you work in an organization that has a security team, um, this is this is the word of advice I usually have is when you work with a security team as a development organization, you're you know, you've got the business going like crazy and you're trying to move into more of an of a of a of a Debs slash um, scrum slash whatever you're going to do next process uh, as it continues to evolve. And it, and it's kind of wavy and, and it's, I kind of equated out to the ocean because you never know what's coming after you. You've got all of these things as security teams. We have very solid requirements. So the easiest thing for us to do is send you the requirements. So we throw you a concrete block. In the middle of the ocean, not the most helpful thing. <laughs> but rec- but recognize that that as a security team, if you can help them understand what your problems are and where and where you're at, and you and if you can show interest in make, ensuring that you want to ensure the steps are um, in place, 
then they're then they're more than happy to work with you. I think there's a, there's an, some industry issues in terms of you know we have that history of being the guy with the sledgehammer, a guy with the stop sign, and all of these other things. And that's not really the way it way it needs to work anymore. It's it's very much about being engaged together. Um, the other piece is it used to be the security team's development lifecycle. So you'd go develop, you know, back in the in the waterfall days, you'd go develop, and then you'd send it to the security team, and then they'd do a whole bunch of stuff, and then they'd send it back, and you could go release. That doesn't fly anymore because I can't review anything in 30 seconds. So we have to, we have to, we have to, the paradigm is really has changed where you need to have security, the security scuffs of the SDL, the secure development lifecycle, need to be in your software development lifecycle and really make it one SDL because the reality is you're doing it for performance, you're doing it for, for that. Um, I'm working with teams that have made significant progress over the last couple of years. They, they were new, they started, we started doing this work with them in a, in a scrum fashion, and suddenly they're doing the threat models themselves. They understand how to do those things. They're ensuring that they're asking real tough security questions because they start with that thought of process of, oh, I threat modeled a, 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 um, a restaurant. And I, now I could I could get there. And it's like, somebody said, oh, the, I, somebody could throw, throw a pipe bomb into the toilet. Well, most restaurants don't worry about that, but you know, that's out of the box thinking, you know, somebody, a paratrooper could fall down from the sky and land on the roof. But those are, th those are all things that in theory could happen. But the question is, can you put that type of thinking into your own software mm -hmm. as you're going, going through and reviewing your architectural design and say, oh, I don't think anybody could do this, but could someone? Mm -hmm. What are the what are the new vectors of attack? What are the what are what are you hearing out there? You know, the uh, one of the things that that we flagged teams on recently is the fact that their extra you know their emails that come from their their software come from the yeah. external. It turns out they look a lot like malware. Oh, and 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 look and look look a lot like like malicious emails out there. So again, you want to make sure that your users are comfortable with everything that you're doing from that perspective because you don't want your your emails to be caught in a spam filter and, and, yeah. and, and all those other things you want it to function correctly. Um, and at the same time, you also don't, you also want to make sure that if somebody takes advantage of your system and pretends to be you, that it's obviously not you. Yeah. So by, but being the more buttoned up you are, the less likely you are to be, you know, for have your users fall for some of the other things. Cause they'd have to go a much further distance, um, to be able to, to do that. That's fantastic. Great advice. Glenn, thank you for all this excellent information. Appreciate you coming on the show. If folks want to reach out to you or get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you or find you online? Um, for the most part, um, they can find me on LinkedIn mostly, um, Glenn Leifay, and then uh, that's the the most frequent place. Um, I'm also on Twitter um, periodically um, at G L E I G L E I F H E. Um, because it just flows off the tongue. Um, yeah, those, those, those decisions you regret later. Uh, but but those, are, both, those are the best places. Um, I tend to tend to speak at security conferences, and uh, those will start popping up. I think I'm going to start doing those again in the fall as uh, in some of the virtual forums um, and be available there too. Great. Well, we're going to put links to your, your social profiles, uh, links to all the tools we talked about, uh, OWASP, all that kind of stuff, the links to Microsoft and everything uh, in the show notes. So folks, if you're listening, just kind of scroll down on your pod player or if you're on the website, take a look over there and uh, you can find Glenn and all the links there. Glenn, thanks for joining, man. All right. Thank you. All right. Everybody, thanks for listening and we'll catch you in the next show. Hey folks, before you get going, don't forget you can download the free ebook that'll show you how 
and why you need to charge at a high enough rate, that's gonna be at donfelker.com slash ebook. Just go there, plug in your email, I'll give you the PDF for free, and it'll show you everything you need to know on how to charge the proper bare minimum rate and also what I recommend. See you over there. That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. You can find more Fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.